Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Libre's law, the animal protection law officially called the Animal Abuse Statute Overhaul Act, went into effect this Monday. It's the first major overhaul of Pennsylvania's animal protection laws in 30 years. The law is named for a badly abused and neglected Boston Terrier puppy who was rescued from a Lancaster County breeder last year. Joining us to discuss Libre's law and animal protection efforts, Kristen Tullo, Pennsylvania State Director of the Humane Society of the United States. Kristen, welcome back. Back to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Also joining us is Amy Kunis, who is the Executive Director of the Humane Society of the Harrisburg area. Amy, good to see you again. Nice to be here. And we have a special guest in the studio, and I don't know whether he's going to contribute to the audio on the program or not, but he certainly is contributing and has made uh, quite an impression here at WITF today. Libre himself <laughs> is running around the studio, and uh, I have to tell you, this dog is a superstar. I mean, it just and it just amazes me. I mean, Amy, I was saying to you before we went on the air today that uh, thinking about the condition that this puppy was in just a year ago when he was rescued, and I mean, I have to admit, seeing the, the photographs, the television stories, I thought, oh, that dog, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult to nurse him back to health, and now just. A, a typical beautiful little puppy. Absolutely, absolutely. The the resiliency of animals are just amazing and and really beyond I think sometimes our understanding as humans. They're just such resilient and forgiving creatures. So, Kristen, just I I mean, I know that uh, this has gotten so much attention that yeah. so many people know Libre's story, but mm -hmm. uh, Tell us what happened to him, you know, how he was rescued, the condition he was in, and how he's gotten to the point he is now. Yeah, that's what the beauty of Libre's story all started with a produce delivery driver, and his name was Dexton, and he was at a Lancaster County farm that he came across Libre, and he asked the farm owner if he could take Libre. And the owner said, why would you want to do that? And Dexton said, because I think I can save him. And from there, he contacted Officer Jen Neilds, Humane Officer Jen Neilds, and she then contacted Janine at Speranza Animal Rescue, who then contacted Dr. Pryor at Dillsburg Vet, and that's how the story unfolded. And then I met Libre on July 22nd of last year with Senator Alloway, and we said we need to put better legislative protection in place to prevent future cases of abuse like Libre's and holding those perpetrators accountable. So we bring justice to those crime and also prevent future violent crimes against humans. What kind of condition? How would you describe his condition when uh, he was found? He was emaciated. Uh, he was left for dead. And it was something that when you hear Dr. Pryor speak about how awful this case was and just the hopefulness that so many people had in rooting for Libre's recovery. And it was the cruelty he suffered as a puppy and that miraculous recovery, which sparked public dialogue across our state, calling on our General Assembly to improve our animal cruelty and neglect laws. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've, let's face it, people have a soft spot in their, their hearts for, for animals. Whenever we talk about animals in this program, it gets uh, one of the greatest responses that we, we have for anything. But, uh, you know, there's something about this dog that just his charisma. I don't know how to describe it, but he, he like, he drew people in to yeah. <laughs> take a look at animal protection mm -hmm. in this state. Yeah, he absolutely did. He is the bug-eyed miracle, as Senator Richard Alloway would say. <laughs> the bug-eyed miracle. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
Well, uh, so let's talk about uh, some of the changes in the laws. W- what has happened uh, in, the, I mean, this was, I won't say it was a long time coming because, you know, it was just last year that Libre was found and nursed back to health. But then, as you said, the momentum kind of built that uh, got people's attention, said, you know what, we need uh, some changes in Pennsylvania. I-, I have to admit, I was a little bit surprised. It's been 30 years since we've had a major overhaul. Yeah. Of animal protection laws in the state, and I, and I think for for the general public, what's important to remember is for folks like Kristen, myself, and a lot of um, longtime animal welfare activists in our community. This really has been a long time coming. Um, we have been talking, um, you know, in the Capitol for a long time about different sections of this law. And what's so amazing is that we incorporated so many things that so many of us have been talking about for years. I have been talking about tethering literally since the first week I started and about getting tethering legislation on the books in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, we've constantly been talking about improving the statute with respect to horses. Um, you know, so the civil immunity piece is huge. There's just so many pieces of this that so many different people over the years have been working on. So it truly has been a very long time coming for all of us, I think. What you just touched on, Amy, is, uh, you know, different pieces of the legislation. We're going to talk about each one of them individually. But uh, in your minds, what was the most important thing that needed to be done Mm -hmm. to protect animals in the state? I'll let you go first. (laughs) I'm an answer, but you go first. (laughs) I think that all five components are critical elements to the animal cruelty statute overhaul. And as we go through those and we share some stories of why this change was needed, people who are tuning in this this morning will understand why we needed better protections in place. So I think that the five components were all critical in this animal cruelty statute overhaul. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the five components. Uh, uh, we'll start with uh, convicted animal abusers must forfeit abused animals to a shelter. That didn't happen before? It's It's there, but they didn't there was language there that just bolsters it. Um, they they weren't. It wasn't a mandatory forfeiture. Um, the the uh, district justice trying the case could make a decision, a determination on forfeiture. And what this is saying is now this is what has to happen. Um, you know, it's just it just it, it helps. It helps to not have to argue that point. Um, you know, in front of a judge that that this is the way it is. If the person is guilty, they're guilty, and and we you know we have the animal. There's a lot of logistical challenges when you cite an individual as a shelter and you hold on to that animal, it really is problematic when when there isn't clean title to that animal. So the fact that we have this now that makes it very clear, very clean, it's done, it's over with, you know, upon that guilty verdict, the, the animal's forfeited to the shelter. So there's a lot of cleanup stuff in here, um, too, and that's a piece of it, really. I would imagine one of the most important words in that, though, is convicted. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Correct. That, uh, if someone is not charged with a crime and not convicted, then you can't you can't take the animal. That's that's correct. I mean, in the beginning, you know, in the beginning of the process of the um, what we would call the investig you know the investigation process, you you do have to have enough probable cause to apply for a warrant to remove that animal from the situation. Um, so that's step one. That removal is is vis-a-vis a warrant process. But then as you go through the trial process, you know, you, you are permitted to hold on to that animal. That animal is considered evidence. But at the end of the trial process, if the individual is not convicted, um, you, you know, the individual, the, the animal will go back to, to the owners. Um, We're going to talk about the other five, or the other four components, I should say, of the five in just a moment. Let's take a phone call from Heather in Lingolstown. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I... I'm so thankful for Speranza and the work they do um, and the work the Humane Society does. What I want to say is that I think in order to break this cycle of violence with animals, we need to spend more time in these schools. Mm-hmm. You know, there should be a week-long program, a couple different grades every every school year, where we have kids in the um, 
Humane Society, seeing how these dogs, where they end up when we throw away our animals, explaining to these kids, um, you know, how when you decide to get a designer breed, what happens? How many animals are killed every year? We need to be in these schools. That's how you break the cycle. And, you know, commercials are great when you want to ask for money, but nobody understands it until you have these kids volunteering at animal shelters, volunteering at rescues. So then they can break the cycle because parents aren't listening. Hmm. Hey, thank you very much for your call, Heather. She's talking about education. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think, and Amy, I think there are children that have you know, birthday parties, I'm sure, at the shelter. Yep. And Heather, your point is so valid in that we should be teaching our children kindness and compassion and respect for life and couldn't agree with you more. And that humane education component at a young age is where we teach our children those values. So thank you for your comment and definitely a direction that I think we should be looking at as a next step. But, yeah. But what were you going to say, Amy? Um, I was just going to say that we, you know, we do have a humane education department. Um, we actually are, I'm going to plug us, we're always looking for volunteers. We have some programs that are already developed. It's super easy to be trained on. You can take one of our adoptable animals into the school and we have a number of programs um, where there is literally one that's totally focused on what Kristen just touched on, on kindness. There's one focused on pit bulls. There's one focused on dog safety. But we're always looking um, for people to assist with that it, it, because it's it's tough to staff, frankly. Um, but it's something that's an easy volunteer position for someone that's able to do it. It's But it's so critical. I want to follow up, though, on what Heather had to say about the children. Yes, it is. Uh, I would think it would be very important to uh, have kids learn very early on kindness, as you say, and how to treat animals, because I think we do see a correlation between how animals are treated and how other people are treated. But don't leave out the adults. I mean, you two see it all the time (laughs) of how adults treat animals, and in many cases, sometimes it's much worse than what a a young person would. There is a high correlation between animal abuse and human violence, and as a next step, we're very focused on working with law enforcement, humane officers, and legal counsel across the Commonwealth to partner with us in delivering training programs for exactly that and making sure that our state has the tools that they need to identify and prosecute cases and also focusing on that education and awareness component across the Commonwealth. When you... Um, you Amy, when you have a, a dog that has been taken to the Humane Society on Grayson Road in in, in Harrisburg, um, is it the dog's given up? Is mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. Is it usually an adult that? Uh, I mean, it's usually it's probably an adult. Now, Libre, hey, <laughs> now you're not going to whine in this. <laughs> <laughs> he was just wandering. He just needs some attention. He needs, on, he needs a pet. Come on over here. Come on over here. <laughs> I'll pet you. But anyway, uh, that most animals that are turned in are they owned by the kids or are they owned by adults? Most of the time, they're they're owned by adults. Now we have we kind of have a unique situation in that we have an intake process. So we are talking with people, we are interviewing people, and we, you know, a lot of times the animals that we take in from um, from adults or from families, they're, they're specific situations. Someone has a... Um, a serious illness. Sometimes there's uh, there's family disruption, such as a divorce, um, or or a job relocation that was unexpected. Uh, sometimes a job loss. So so you know there there are a lot of I, I I think it would be unfair to say that there aren't a lot of legitimate reasons mm-hmm. um, why people do do surrender animals. And I, I think we all have done a good job of really trying to send the message home that these creatures are not throwaways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that's something that uh, it is an opportunity to educate when someone comes in to surrender an animal under the impression, oh, I'll just walk in and surrender it. That's an education point for us. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. You need to schedule an appointment. We're going to do an evaluation. We're going to have a conversation to see if there's a way we can help you keep this animal in your home. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. During this portion of the program, we're talking about Pennsylvania's new animal protection laws known as Libre's Law. Actually, Libre is in the house today. He's uh, just kind of making his way around the studio, sniffing everything in sight. Uh, and I think he slobbered on uh, on Amy a couple times. But uh, other yes. than that, <laughs> hey, it's, I'm sure you're used to it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Our guest today, Kristen Tulo, Pennsylvania State Director of the Humane Society of the United States, and Amy Kunis, Executive Director of the Humane Society of the Harrisburg area. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. That's 1-800-729-7532. Go to WITF.org, by the way, because we're going to have all kinds of pictures. Rich Copeland, my producer, is sitting, uh, well, he's wagging his tail, Rich, so he must, be, he must be happy. But we have lots of pictures here today. I want to talk about um, some of the other aspects of, um, of the law. Increased penalties for heinous animal abuse. Yeah. Talk about that. And that was the initial bill, Senator Richard Alloway's Libre's Law, which increased penalties for egregious acts of cruelty. We were one of only three states that did not have first offense felony for torture of an animal. So when we implemented this new law, we were really aligning with the rest of the country. And Pennsylvania really stepped up and we're so proud of of our leadership across the state for enacting that law. Why did it take it so long? It, I think that we are just at a place where we're starting to trend in that direction. And I'll let you know that our um, CEO of the Humane Society of the United States um, did email to congratulate us on the win and said federal lawmakers are looking at Pennsylvania for our leadership on these issues. Well, that's good to hear. It's fabulous news. Yeah. yeah. And it all started with his dog. It, it started with Libre. <laughs> he sparked that movement. It's, it's got amazing. national attention, hasn't it? It is. Yes. <laughs> All right. Out uh, of protection for horses, you mentioned this, uh, Amy. What kind of protection for horses? Well, it includes horses now in different portions where it was describing only dogs and cats. And that's kind of one of the, um, the, the interesting things about this law. There's some language that took the word dog and cat and replaced it with animal. So it makes it clear now that each section applies to an animal. Um, and, and that was a limitation before. That was a strong limitation. Um, and if you tie that into the torture piece that, that Kristen just touched on, one of, one of the things that I'm the most excited about, um, about this law, um, I love all animals, of course, naturally, uh, but I started my animal career, if you will, as, as a horse lady. Um, I started riding when I was you know, young, a young girl, and um, the Humane Society has a lot of rescue horses. And unfortunately, with horses, for some reason, there's a very unique um, distinction between horse cruelty that we see and other animal cruelty. And that is people don't call until it is almost too late. They, they just don't call. We don't see the calls for horses until they are literally walking skeletons or they're laying in the pasture and not getting up. So by the time we're able to get to the rescue point, we're at critical. And we, over the over my, my time here, we have lost countless horses. They have died or they have been dead by the time we've arrived or they've been in the stages of death. Uh, Why is that? You know... I mean, we could hypothesize on it. I, we live in a very, you know, agrarian society here in in the Commonwealth. Um, people are very hesitant, I think, to get into other people's business, so they're very hesitant to call, you know, to call essentially call the humane police officer. We still are, we still are officers of the law. I think they. A lot of people maybe think, oh, well, the horse doesn't look that bad, or maybe I don't have horses, so I don't really know. And it's it's a little bit of on education um, on the matter. So I, I think there's a lot of things that go into play as as far as why do people let them suffer that way. 
I, I do think sometimes because horses are so costly to take care of, people get in way over their heads. Mm-hmm. They get way too many. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't understand how much it costs to get hay in the winter, you know, is here. Um, they don't understand the full cost and they just they just leave them. And this bill came to be known as Cordelia's Law after Senator John Eichelberger uh, came across a horse in his district who was at an auto salvage yard. Cordelia had no food, water, or shelter. She was suffering from starvation. And after 10 days of intensive vet and foster care, she couldn't be saved. And because misdemeanor charges only applied to dogs and cats, the perpetrator paid a mere fine. Yes. Under this new law, misdemeanor or felony charges could be filed. And really um, what Amy's hitting on, um, as we move forward, when people see something, they should say something and contacting that Humane Society police officer. If you uh, don't have access to a humane officer, then contacting state or local police agency to investigate what might be going on with that that animal. Absolutely. And I mean, you could see the difference to go from a person who allowed a horse to die paying a couple hundred dollars. Now that's a potential felony. That's amazing. And the number of animals that have died it's just it's sinful and that we could have helped so it's just it's you know and it's not to say that we're you know we're excited to go out and get people with this law that is absolutely not the Mm -hmm. intent of the law education for every humane officer is always the first option but for those people that are have just gone beyond that um, you know, it's it's wonderful that we have these tools. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, you said that uh, there are a lot of people who don't recognize when a horse is in trouble. What should they look for? Um, some things to look for really is is muscle mass. And if if you live next to the horse and you are noticing visible change that's noted to your eye as an untrained or uneducated person, and you start to see a horse's back end should look somewhat rounded. Um, if you will. And when you start to see things sinking in, think of a, a person as they be, as they age, there is a little bit of a sinking in feature. For some of us. For some. Not not the beautiful people in this room, of course. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not talking not about that. Not the beautiful that. people here. I'm talking about going the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> but but their, their, their hips will start to come in. The eye socket will start to come in. If you see, seeing some ribs, totally normal. But if you can if you can visually see from the road the majority of the horse's ribs, there's a problem. There's a problem. And and again, if you're in doubt, make the call. Just make the call and say, hey, could somebody just drive by? Many times, especially with horses in a pasture situation, we can take a run by and say, eh, well, you know, things could happen. Sometimes the horse is under vet care. Or a lot of times people will have just got purchased the horse, you know, and they're just still trying to adjust a feed schedule. But if you see something, say something. You're not... You know, having us go out and do a wellness check, and that's what that's what you could you could call and say. You don't have to say, "Hey, mm-hmm. I think my neighbor needs to be investigated." Mm-hmm. You could say, "Would you mind popping over and do a wellness check on this horse that lives next to me?" I'm not I'm not sure what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this. You know, oh my gosh, I called the cops on my neighbor. We're, 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 we can run by, do a wellness check. You'll sleep better at night, and and we'll get it done. Another part of uh, Libre's law: tethering, mm-hmm. uh, and. You know, we've all seen this, and it doesn't seem to happen as much today. That's just an observation. As I remember when I was a kid, you couldn't go down the block without seeing a dog chained outside with a dog box or something like that, if there was a dog mm-hmm. box. But uh, so what does this uh, this law do with tethering, or how does it uh, address tethering? There are numerous state and federal agencies that have position statements against uh, chronic tethering from the Humane Society of the United States to the Pennsylvania Vet Medical Association and even the United States Department of Agriculture. And we're seeing this trend where these agencies are really encouraging um, anti-tethering stipulations. And this bill puts reasonable limitations in place for those dogs who are tethered as a means of confinement. And we're, again, not looking at this as a a punitive uh, section of the bill. We're looking at this as preventative. We This is the first time we will have statewide regulations for anti-tethering in place. And it's an opportunity, like Amy said earlier, for humane officers to educate on if your dog is uh, 
tethered as a means of confinement, here is the best practices that we have in place and a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can tell you, our, our humane police officers, and I think I think most humane police officers, have been talking to people within their jurisdiction that are what we would call chronic tetherers. You know, that, that we, we know those folks. We know the people within our jurisdiction because we'll get calls from um, concerned citizens all the time on the same location saying this dog is, is tethered and they're, they're very upset about it. So, so when we're, we're in the area, our humane police officers are stopping by and saying, hey, you know, we just wanted to let you know this legislation, you know, is going or is now in effect. Here's, here's some information on what you need to do to, um, to make a change. But wait a minute. I just want to make sure that uh, everyone is clear on this. It's not illegal to tether, correct? It's um, n- now. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> so the with, basic, with limitations. Yeah, it's um, so basic. Uh, no longer than nine hours within a twenty-four okay. hour period. Right. Mm-hmm. No longer than thirty minutes when it's above ninety degrees or below thirty-two. Those are inclement weather situations. The tether needs to be three times, at least ten feet, or three, three times, times the length of the dog's body. And the best way to measure that is from the tip of the nose to the tail, base of the tail. Um, And access to shade, food, water. Um, So these are very basic uh, regulations. And again, just an opportunity for humane officers to educate and raise awareness on, you know, if someone is going to tether their dog, this is the best situation. Seen uh, over the years, dogs that uh, have been tethered, even if they have a, um, and again, you know, this is a, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but there are many dogs that I have seen over the years that uh, are tethered that look pretty mean, that they they are not happy about. They're not happy campers. And two other points I wanted to make that I didn't bring up, actually, was the swivel. Swivel collar. I wasn't going to correct you. I was going to wait. I was going to wait. We have the swivel, um, so they can't wrap themselves up um, and and hurt themselves, and also a well-fitted collar. Um, But what you just mentioned, Scott, is that we know when there are a a dog that is continuously tethered can suffer severe psychological damages where a normally docile dog can become aggressive to physical damages where Amy can tell you the stories that she's seen of embedded collars and... Mm -hmm. These are that is egregious cruelty and what we are trying to prevent. Um, and so it, I, absolutely, I'm sure you, absolutely. You the embedded collar is is a very common um, example that's cited uh, because you know the collar as the dog grows, the collar is not adjusted. It's extremely painful and and horrific. One of the other things that people don't think about, we don't talk about a lot, um, is the is the muscle atrophy. We had a um, a beautiful, beautiful St. Bernard several years ago that needed double hip replacement because of the shortness of the tether, the size of the dog, that the dog had no, and he was put on a tether from the time he was a pup. He had no ability to actually grow his muscle mass and he couldn't support himself. So there, there are, I mean, imagine, you know, all the other uh, physical issues to being constrained to just that space. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the worst cases we saw because, you know, of needing both hips replaced. At this, and he's a two-year-old dog. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, civil immunity provided mm-hmm. by veterinarians and veterinary technicians. Uh, yep. What's that about? Oh, that's a really uh, big section of the new law that I think is not often um, as talked about. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that we're discussing it today. Um, this provides civil immunity for humane society police officers and veterinarians who are reporting animal cruelty in good faith. And it prevents frivolous lawsuits when they are re- reporting that that cruelty. And, you know, we see examples with Jen Neal's officer, Jen Neal, to rescue Libre to Dr. Pryor. And those who are protecting our animals deserve our protection. So this puts those basic protections in place when they're reporting cruelty and good faith. Absolutely. Let's take some phone calls. Here's Jim and Edders. Jim, you're on the air. Thank you. I uh, hope your guests can shed some light on this. I believe it happened after the Libre case. There was a case, I believe it was in York County. It could have been Lancaster County. But uh, a dog was beaten so badly, it was taken to the vet by the either the humane officer or the animal control officer. Uh, it was beaten so badly, it, couldn't, it lost control of its legs and they had to euthanize the dog. 
yet it specifically stated that no charges were filed against the perpetrator. I just want to know if your guest can shed any light on it. Thank you very much for your call. I don't know if you're familiar with this case, but is that is that common? I'm not familiar with the case um, at all. I mean, I could probably, and I, Creston, maybe you want to help me with this, I could probably guess why no charges were filed. Um, you know, maybe the perpetrator... I don't know if we knew the perpetrator. I don't know if, if the York SPCA or, or York knew the perpetrator. There could have been issues with how the dog was removed from the property. Um, it might have it. We're and I'm guessing because I'm not familiar with the case, but it might have been some type of procedural, you know, um, reason why charges couldn't have been filed. But certainly under under the statute, charges could have been filed. But there mm. might have been other things in play. Yeah. And I think you bring up a great point. Amy and I are actually fortunate enough to be on um, a training for um, all uh, judges across the state, 555 MDJs, to present on this topic, on the new law, and really focusing on the reason we need to take animal cruelty crime seriously. So you do bring up a very good point. While there could be a lot of reasons that charges weren't filed, uh, we are very focused on, as a next step, the training to make sure that these crimes are being enforced and prosecuted. Absolutely. And this this training for the MDJs is, is a huge step, um, making sure our, our law enforcement officials are trained and taking it seriously, making sure um, our, our DAs are trained and taking it seriously, because that's that's really where we need to be. You know, a lot of people have asked. I know they've asked, they've asked Kristen, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And it's, and it's really Kristen's done a great job of saying, wait, we passed this legislation, but now we have to get it into play. We have to make sure it is being enforced and it's being enforced appropriately um, and not, you know, because the message is Pennsylvania takes animal cruelty seriously. And mm -hmm. we want to make sure that message trickles down yeah. to everybody. All right. Well, then here's something else. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania is famous for or infamous for. And I've gotten several emails and phone calls about this. Uh, more, more needs to be said about the dangers of puppy mills, preventing them from existing in the first place and the hazards that come from buying from them. People need to research their breeder they're buying from or better yet, adopt. There are too many animals that need homes out there. All right. So there are a couple yeah. different issues issues that uh, she addresses there. But let's mm -hmm. start with the puppy mills. As I said, I've gotten several emails here saying, what are we going to do about puppy mills? First of yeah. all, define what a puppy mill is. Uh, a puppy mill is any time that you're maximizing profit at the expense of an animal. And puppy mills are pervasive in the state of Pennsylvania. In particular, I was very proud w with knowing Lancaster City just recently enacted a resolution encouraging adoption from a shelter or rescue first. Um, and I think that as we start seeing cities like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia who have enacted ordinance that ban the sale of puppy mill dogs within their city. So if you are a pet store that's in the city, you are required to work with the rescues and shelters to adopt out animals as opposed to How, but selling. You know what the, the listener said, though, about the research where you were adopting from. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, how do you know whether a breeder has a, a good reputation, uh, a kennel has a good reputation? So there is on the Humane Society of the United States, this is an excellent resource. If you are, um, if you prefer, your preference is to adopt a particular breed, we of course always encourage adoption from a shelter rescue first. But for those who are looking for that, we do have a responsible breeder um, website. So if you just Google the HSUS responsible breeder, they will talk about um, what you need to look for when you're identifying who you would purchase a, a puppy from. Well, generally, what do you look for? You want to make sure that you can see the mom. Um, if they won't show you the mom, that's the breeder dog. And that is a huge red flag that that is not a healthy situation for the animal. And that should actually be reported immediately to um, Pennsylvania Dog Law, the Bureau of Dog Law Enforcement. So if you have any tips on a uh, kennel that you believe is uh, not operating 
um, you you should report that to the Bureau of Dog Law Enforcement. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I would I would like to mention, um, if you a lot of people don't know this, if you made the unfortunate, um, you know choice of, of purchasing from, from a, a breeder and have problems, we do have a puppy lemon law in the state of Pennsylvania. And there, there is a way that you can, um, you, you can seek uh, remedies for, for charges that, that you incur. But what happens to the dog? You're you're not you're, you don't have to forfeit the dog. The 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 puppy lemon law actually covers vet bills that you would incur okay. because of things that were not disclosed to you or problems that the dog had, um, you know, since birth or or got from from the environment that it was born into. So th- these dogs that uh, were bred in uh, puppy mills, a lot of them have health problems. What are some of the problems that you see with them? Um, it. it, it... You know, it's, there, there are initial issues, but there are also long-term issues. If, if you look at the health issues of the moms and dads, um, they're, they're distinctly different from the health issues of the puppies. But the problem is with, with the puppies, a lot of times you could be getting a dog that seems perfectly fine the day you adopt it because it's a puppy. It hasn't developed problems yet. But you're not seeing a lot of really good, um, thoughtful, selective breeding. So let's say mom has hip dysplasia and dad has a heart murmur. They're breeding those dogs. What do you think the puppies are going to have? Mm-hmm. You know, as they age, they're, they're just not being thoughtful about, about what's happening. Um, you know, in addition to the fact that the puppy could have basic... Um, Diseases associated with with in, in inappropriate sanitation, like worms, um, fleas, massive flea infestation, things like that. Mm-hmm. And Libre actually um, had a genetic condition that was passed down from the mother, and that was he being irresponsibly bred. Um, but I think just to you know summarize. We need to raise awareness and education. Adopt, don't shop. Um, if you are going to shop, make sure that you're buying from a responsible breeder and looking for that resource on the Humane Society of the United States website. And also working on local ordinances because the more ordinances that that we have in place that prevent the sale of puppy mill dogs and ban the sale of dogs at outdoor venues like flea markets, that mm-hmm. is the way that we push up to create statewide legislation to prov- to stop puppy mills in our state. Dogs are sold at flea markets? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. In little baskets. They're dressed up. They look all cute. And people are there, you know. Yeah. Thinking it's it's going to be a good idea, yeah. not so much. And, and that's but that's another and a great resource if you're interested in enacting an ordinance locally, you can find that champion on your city council or county commission and we have resources on the HSUS page as well on how to enact an ordinance in your local community. I want to thank both of you for being with us today, and Libre as well. Uh, he, he likes getting up. Uh-oh. I see a little bit of slobber in the yeah, window there's some there. slobber. <laughs> you got some slobber, Scott. <laughs> he, he, he likes getting up with his front paws and looking out the window here. That We have glass around the studio. But uh, I want to thank Kristen Tulo, Pennsylvania State Director of the Humane Society of the United States, Amy Kunis, Executive Director of the Humane Society of the Harrisburg area, Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Older Americans often find themselves a punchline for being late adopters of technologies. Think of the flashing 12 on your parents' VCR or trying to explain document uploading to your aunt. People cringe when they see the slightest breach of etiquette and protocol by baby boomers on social media. But a recent Penn State study found that seniors constitute the fastest growing demographic of Facebook users. Joining us from State College is S. Sham Sundar, a distinguished professor of communications and co-director of the Media Effects Research Laboratory and at Penn State and co-author of this study. Dr. Sundar, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so the first question I have to ask is why? Why are older people, and by older people, I think, are we looking at like 55 and older, which I'm in that age group, 55 and older, but why are older people the fastest growing age group to join Facebook? Uh, in a way, because uh, they were uh, lagging behind, and uh, 
you know, the college students adopted it at a much more rapid pace, and uh, the older adults were the ones um, that uh, had not quite warmed up to this technology uh, till well after 2010, and then they realized that uh, they needed to get on the bandwagon as well because a lot of their family members and friends and their younger, uh, you know, uh, family members, especially their grandchildren, were on Facebook, and that would be one good way to communicate with them and keep up with them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to ask another why question. Uh, as you said, they kind of decided to get on the bandwagon. Uh, in my introduction, I mentioned that there are some older people that, uh, you know, are a little bit... I don't know, a little bit hesitant to use technology, a little slower to adopt it than others. I mean, was that part of the reason? And the second part of that question is, why did older people decide to get onto Facebook and use the technology? Sure. Um, When we did surveys back in uh, 2010 and a little before that, um, the vast majority of older adults showed absolutely no interest in joining, and they thought uh, it was something of a fad and they thought it was something for younger people, and they had, uh, you know, uh, much disdain for what goes on on Facebook. They thought this is all trivial communications, uh, and they were also, of course, concerned with their privacy concerns and their lack of skill. But uh, over the years, when we've tracked them in the last, uh, you know, five, seven years, we've seen that um, there are six primary reasons for why older adults uh, want to use Facebook. One is, of course, keeping in touch, especially with their family members, especially with their children and grandchildren. Uh, The second one is uh, sharing photos. Uh, They love the idea of being able to see, um, especially their grandchildren's pictures. Um, And so Facebook is a good way to kind of keep up with what's going on in the lives of uh, several of their grandchildren at the same time. Um, Another is what we generally call a social surveillance. It's the idea that they want to keep up with uh, what's going on with different people's lives, who's vacationing where and who has a health problem and so forth that they are talking about on Facebook. Um, Another reason is uh, responding to family members' requests. People uh, are often requested by their uh, family members to get on Facebook so that they can uh, more conveniently communicate with them. And that's the next reason is convenient communications. Facebook uh, is more convenient than some of the online, like you were mentioning in your introduction about how older adults have a particular problem with dealing with uh, complicated technology. Uh, Social networking sites like Facebook make it very easy for you to just hit a like button or simply comment or even have a chat window that opens up easily. Um, And then finally, one other reason that several older adults have kind of warmed up to this technology lately is uh, just curiosity. It's been such a become such a part of our, um, you know, mainstream uh, culture that every older adult now is uh, somewhat curious uh, about what might be on Facebook and what might be the advantages of going on Facebook. So they enroll just to kind of find out what it's all about. But what don't older adults like about Facebook? Well, there are again six reasons. One <laughs> is number one is privacy. That is the biggest kind of deterrent. Uh, they're concerned about uh, the degree to which their information might be mishandled uh, or misused by other people. Uh, they're not so concerned about uh, revealing things, uh, but more about how much control they might have about the information that they reveal online or who might have access to that information, everybody from telemarketers to people who might try to scam them. Um, the second reason is um, the need for um, uh, you know, media richness. They find that uh, Facebook in general is not as rich a medium um, as uh, talking to someone face-to-face. Uh, they don't find that quite as, uh, you know, Uh, present. You know, they don't feel present with the others that they are interacting with. Um, Another reason for not using uh, Facebook is, you know, they want uh, familiar technology. They have a preference. Everybody, all of us have a preference for familiarity and especially older adults who have a generation that has grown up with older media, including telephone, prefer uh, picking up a telephone and calling rather than interacting through online means. Uh, another reason that I kind of alluded to earlier is triviality of communication. They find it uh, uh, very trivial, some of the things that people talk about on Facebook. They are mundane day-to-day 
uh, activities. I had lunch here. I had uh, this, uh, you know, nice uh, evening out and things like that, which, you know, may not be particularly interesting to others. Um, so it kind of tends to be self-centered and ultimately somewhat trivial in terms of what it communicates. Uh, another reason is time commitment. You would think that older adults have all the time in the world, but our interviews reveal that they are very busy uh, with their with their daily schedules, and they loathe to spend time on things that they don't see a direct benefit from. And so they see Facebook as a bit of a time suck. Um, and then finally, another reason is frustration with site tools. They find it somewhat frustrating dealing with some of the complicated, uh, you know, settings that some of these uh, tools have, privacy settings and the notification settings, and uh, you know, barring somebody from being uh, notified and things like that. All of those little, uh, uh, you know, dials that you have to kind of turn on and off might be, uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, of a deterrent for older adults. Uh, you know, it's good to hear that uh, older adults still enjoy that face-to-face conversation, and we're not going to see a group of older adults all sitting there looking at their phones uh, <laughs> while they're sitting across the table from one well, another. Well, that might be true with the next generation. <laughs> Once baby boomers start uh, becoming, uh, you know, coming to our retirement homes and things like that, <laughs> You'll probably see that uh, replicated, uh, just like you'll see with college students. But I, I find it interesting that uh, that many look at what is on Facebook as as trivial, uh, and and that is something that they're not really interested in. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that politics politics is not mentioned because I, I have to say that you know you hear that complaint so much nowadays from all age groups that there's so much politics so much arguing back and forth on Facebook that uh, you know I'm, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't mention that yeah actually that did not come up in our interviews although I must say that uh, much of the uh, work that we are reporting now that's getting published now by our research group the data were collected before the very contentious 2016 elections um, so a lot of uh, political discussions happen uh, because of the kind of polarized election that we had this past uh, year. And uh, maybe if we repeat this, we might uh, see more of politics uh, coming up in, the, in our discussion. Uh, much of what uh, we talked to older adults about, they tended to steer away from uh, controversial topics in their own discussions. We looked at uh, several of their postings, we tracked them for a year, and uh, we, you know, we find that uh, they follow the same etiquette as they do, uh, you know, when they meet people, strangers at dinner table and so forth, is they don't discuss politics, they don't discuss religion, uh, for the most part. Uh, Something else your research found that uh, is is interesting is that uh, you you found that most often older adults did not put a friend request out there, that they waited for someone to request them as a friend, correct? Yeah, I mean, it uh, it is generally not um, something that's part of their uh, social interaction. They don't go out and, uh, you know, make friends. Typically, as you get older, there's a kind of a... A tunneling effect that happens even outside of this uh, online media context. People tend to become much more choosy about uh, who they hang out with, or who they spend time with. Uh, and this is uh, well known in uh, kind of the gerontology literature. Um, but uh, when it comes to Facebook, especially, uh, we found in our interviews that uh, several senior citizens took objection to the word friend. Uh, they thought that uh, friend meant something much more sacred, much more important than the kind of acquaintances you make on social media. Um, so they had a, a bit of a resistance to even calling uh, someone that you might actually uh, ask to enroll in your network as a friend. Um, and so that has something to do with uh, the, their lack of initiative in friending people. Uh, but it's also, I think, more more fundamentally due to uh, the fact that they are much more particular about who they, uh, you know, uh, spend time with or who they spend interacting. You know, and, and I, you know, I, don't, I was about to say early on uh, when Facebook, uh, so many young people discovered Facebook, but then there seemed to be a stage where parents and grandparents were getting on Facebook and that there are a lot of younger people saying, well, I want to go find another social media platform because now the older people will have adopted. I don't want my mom seeing my pictures, uh, my grandmom seeing my pictures out there. I mean, how have younger users of Facebook accepted 
with this that now all age groups are involved in Facebook? So, you know, Facebook has become uh, an, uh, an ecosystem, a media ecosystem where you do have uh, family conversations and you do um, uh, exchange information that might be of importance to your family members. But uh, younger kids, especially teenagers now, uh, have moved away from Facebook for uh, more more uh, edgy conversations or more peer-to-peer conversations. They do that on other media of their choice, like Snapchat um, and so and Instagram, you know, where they share uh, pictures. And so they they uh, you know they have. Uh, it's not like that they're abandoning Facebook as such. Uh, they are using Facebook for certain purposes. Uh, but they are for more peer-to-peer communication, things that they don't want their family members to see. Uh, they take it to another medium, often an online uh, mobile uh, social medium, uh, you know, like Snapchat. Dr. Sundar, how do you want this research to be used? Well, there are several implications of this research. We uh, we certainly want uh, uh, the um, online social media to be a solution for problems like uh, social isolation and uh, loneliness that uh, the vast majority of baby boomers are about to face because uh, the demographics are such that we are going to have uh, a lot of baby boomers unable to find spots in retirement homes. They are going to have to age in place. That means aging in their own homes uh, with all the latest sensors and so forth. They are able to kind of function uh, and not get into any uh, danger. But at the same time, they are going to be socially isolated, unlike uh, in retirement homes. And to combat social isolation, uh, I think we need more and more tools uh, that can um, give them uh, a window into the larger uh, social network that they have and have, uh, uh, you know, give them the ability to interact on a daily basis uh, with their networks on a, you know, on a social level, even uh, despite their mobility limitations that might restrict them to a particular uh, home. And so uh, for senior citizens, we find that this is uh, a potential solution to the loneliness and social isolation problem. And for designers, we want them to uh, uh, be fully informed of the needs of senior citizens so they can design uh, different interface features. Dr. Sundar, I hate to interrupt you, but I'm out of time. Dr. Sundar, thank you very much for being with us tomorrow. No problem. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.